You big Shakespeare guy, Noel? <laughs> Am I a big Shakespeare guy? I don't dislike it. I'm I'm I think I've seen one or two of the performances at um oh my goodness. Stratford. Stratford, thank you. So I, I used to go to the Stratford Festival as a teenager, I guess, and I enjoyed those performances. Well, I gotta tell you, you haven't lived till you've seen it performed by a homicidal maniac. That's what I've learned from this movie. <laughs> a um very famous actor, homicidal maniac. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's what we got this week. Welcome to Bad Movies and Beer. I'm Cooper. And I'm Nolan. And the uh, very famous actor, homicidal maniac uh, character, to be clear, not the actor that Nolan's referring to. <laughs> Do we know that for uh, sure? I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he is a bit of a horror legend in God. Yeah, it's Vincent Price. The movie we are talking about today is Theater of Blood. What do you think about this one, Noel? So this is my very first Vincent Price movie. Which that is crazy to me. I know of. There, there might not be true. His voice, I definitely recognize. It was uh, it was fun to watch and to, to see him perform because this is all about him. It is a performance, too, I will say. We're getting a real just kind of cornucopia here because, as we're going to get into... He's committing these horrifying murders of his former critics, which probably is every actor's dream on some level. But in the way he's doing it, he's also performing like just classic Shakespeare scenes, these monologues, soliloquies. We're getting a little bit of everything. It's like it's almost like a high culture, low culture hybrid here. <laughs> yeah, we're going to go through and talk about everything that happens as we always do. And I don't want to give too much away um, yet because it's more fun as we lay it all out in order. But I really appreciated the way that the character was so deep into his performances. That's something I think method actors sometimes will do, right? They'll get so far into a part that they sort of have trouble separating. But Well, yeah, that's what you always hear. And uh, I mean, there, there's a clear bleed over in terms of his professional and personal life <laughs> with very good reason as we find out. But yeah, let's get into all that. But before we do, this week's beer... Yeah, so as always, we find a beer, a craft beer that matches up with the theme from the movie. And so this week, we're going to be drinking the Final Bow Porter. Oh, there you go. It's a great lock here. This beer is from Overflow Brewery. They're uh, out of Ottawa, Ontario. I think we did an Ottawa brewery already this season uh, with Beyond Just the Pale. last week. Yeah. That was last week, yeah. Uh, I think you bought me a six-pack of beers from Overflow and gave them to me a while ago, and I enjoyed the ones that I went through. I think I even had one of these, but it's been a while, so I'm excited to try this again. It's a porter, and so we're going to get some sort of chocolatey, maybe coffee-style notes as well, similar to a stout, I think. I'm, I'm looking forward to trying it. Yeah, it's claiming it'll have an espresso-like finish, and I dig that. All right, I like the sound of that. You want to get into it? Absolutely, let's do it. Yeah. Okay, so we begin with some grainy black and white footage of Shakespearean performances in between the credits. Now, because this is like a 1970s movie, we're still getting that kind of old thing where it's like you get the full credits before the movie, you know what I mean? Which is really so different from today. It was really interesting, and having no context for Vincent Price, I was like, when is this movie made? What are we about to watch? Is this black and white, and we're going to have to read? Yeah, you're a little bit concerned there, for sure. <laughs> Um, but quickly, well, not quickly, longly, after much time, we get through those uh, really extended credits and into some shots of Great Britain. Yeah, we've got a truck that is driving across a bridge. And in case, uh, you know, it wasn't already abundantly clear, the name on the truck is like Shakespeare. Uh, what was it like, like a bread company or something? I don't know. Yeah. So we know we're going to be getting some Shakespearean acting or themes in this movie already. Definitely. From there, we pull back into the apartment 
of one of Britain's top theater critics. That's a, a gentleman by the name of Maxwell. He is reading the newspaper and is very dismayed to see that they have edited his latest review. Took out some of the best lines, apparently. Yeah, they didn't let him be as honest as he wanted to be. He wasn't able to shit all over those uh, actors and crush their dreams. Which apparently is what critics do, at least according to this movie. Uh, (laughs) He gets a phone call suddenly about a problem at kind of like a theater building. He has to go down and check it out. Now, his wife is very much against this. Apparently, she read his horoscope this morning, and it is not good. Uh, Yeah, on top of that, she had a dream the night before about him getting eaten by animals from a zoo. Yeah, he assures her he's not going to the zoo, though, so it shouldn't be a problem. (laughs) And uh, her concern here is clearly shown with an extreme close-up of her frantically worried face as we hear a lightning crash sound effect. It came out of nowhere. It was a sunny day when we saw the fucking truck, man. I love this when we put in sound effects, and this happens more in horror movies than any other genre that I've watched that have nothing to do with the weather that's out there just to set the mood. They're clearly telling us what's up. Oh, yeah, it sets the mood. Now, at the theater, Maxwell is greeted by two police officers who escort him to the uh, source of the problem. Apparently, some squatters have kind of moved in, and he needs to get them out of there. We quickly see that the squatters, though, are not all there mentally, and they are not going anywhere. In fact, they quickly swarm him. He uh, calls out to the police, but they are uh, strangely not interested in helping him, and he ends up getting stabbed multiple times against a thick plastic sheet. Yeah, this is an interesting scene. Um, Very quickly, it's obvious that all of the extras in this movie have zero acting experience. You were really down on these extras. I mean, they're supposed to be playing, like, drunken, homeless people, down on their luck people. Deranged. Yeah, but, like, they all have mental illness, and, like, they're all drunk all the time. They're always drinking some weird purple drink. It's so strange. No drink is that color. Maybe they're trying to say it's an absinthe. I think there are absents in a purple color. I know I've green, only ever seen green. Green yeah, is the traditional one, but I think there is, and that's a really strong alcohol. Where are these homeless people getting absinthe from? Uh, I don't know. Or no. maybe they're making their own purple drink. Like antifreeze, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. But they attack this theater critic, and it, to me, has a feeling almost of very early zombie movies. Yeah, it's that kind of shot where he's like pressed up against the thing and you see these blood splatters start showing up. You get the swarming, the hands, and that's a great call by you. Yeah, that's the very first vibes it gave me was it felt like that. And and it was an interesting shot. Like they had a cool camera angle on that. They do some neat angles for the death scenes in here. And we're going to get lots more of them as it is a horror movie. But what do we find out after we see that uh, theater critic get stabbed a whole bunch and then eventually crash through that uh, plastic sheet you were talking about. Yeah, he gets to the sheet and he starts stumbling towards one of the officers. He's still kind of hoping for some assistance, but the officer quotes Shakespeare to him before pulling off some heavy stage makeup. This is Vincent Price, the star of our movie, of course, playing the role of Edward Lionheart. This critic recognizes him. He says, It's you, but you're dead. No, another critical miscalculation on your part, dear boy. I am well. It is you who are dead. This is what we keep hearing is that Edward Lionheart, this actor, has passed away somehow, but clearly not. And we cut to a scene of him in an old rundown theater performing a Shakespearean monologue in front of that same band of, uh, you know, deranged hobos who just killed Mr. Maxwell. Yeah, so this is going to be the villain slash star of our movie, and he's going to be trying to enact his revenge on those theater critics who 
So wrongly overlooked him for what a performing artist of the year award. It's yeah the uh, the critics circle the top award of the year. Speaking of the critics circle, the next day we see Britain's other top critics. They are there for a meeting and trying to decide whether or not they should wait for Maxwell to show up or just start without him. They don't know that he's been brutally murdered. They find out pretty soon. This whole scene is really just an excuse, though, to kind of introduce us to these characters and also give us a little uh, glimpse, a little uh, idea of what their vices are. So one guy is clearly like a drunk. He loves wine. This other guy loves He's talking about some hot secretary. And this is going to eventually tie into how they are murdered. Yep. So our villain uses some of these vices against them. The villain knows some of their weaknesses, and this allows them to set up some of the future killings we're going to get here. What it is also doing, I think, at this point, and I thought this was interesting, was it's starting to show all of these critics in a very negative light, right? They're trying to build sympathy for our murderous character. Which sounds so weird when you say it, right? Yeah, but that is definitely the theme through this. And they do do a decent job of making you like or want to almost root for our villain in this movie. Well, if nothing else, they do a decent job of making you dislike most of these critics. They seem yeah. like kind of real assholes or like just, you know. Yeah, so you don't feel so bad when they get taken out, right, in that same sense, which I thought is interesting. I think it takes away from some of the tension or scariness of the killing yeah. when you're kind of like... When you don't care about the victims. Yeah, when you're yeah. not when you don't care about the victims, but it does make it more palatable. And I don't know the history of horror very much, but I was wondering if that was kind of thematic of the time. Like, is that something that this particular film went for? I think this is just the focus of this particular film. I mean, we have a lot of movies where the characters are, like, not very well developed. You get quick introductions and quick exits. You're basically just bringing in bodies to... We've seen that before, like, Friday yeah. the 13th oh, Part yeah. 3. Uh, you're just bringing people in to get killed so you can have a body count for whoever your killer is. Um, but in this case, you're right. It is really, they aren't even trying to make some of these characters sympathetic, which is a, a pretty big departure from other movies we've seen for sure. Now, the leader of this group, Peregrine Devlin, what a fucking name on that guy, eh? <laughs> wow. He gets called to the crime scene. And as he's looking around, he notices an old poster for a performance of Julius Caesar starring Edward Lionheart, Vincent Price's character, on a wall. And he kind of notes that that's a little bit strange. From there, we cut to another one of the critics being led into the old theater from before by Lionheart's right-hand man who looks kind of like an old hippie. He's got this big, like, ginger afro wig and a handlebar mustache. Giant, like the Elvis Presley sunglasses, like, yeah. you know, those things. Yeah, very funny character, right? You're just like, why did this... Clearly not one of the drunks, like not one of nope. the people that are a part of that other deranged group. It's kind of hurting the drunks almost. Yeah, yeah. why Why is this drunk sheep herder working with <laughs> <laughs> the Price? drunken shepherd? Yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. What is the person who plays the, the loot or something and brings them all? It's a Pied Piper of drunks. There here. you go, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, right now he's leading this other critic into the theater. Now, that guy is aware that Edward Lionheart is alive, or at least he's been told that. And he's there believing he's going to give an interview with Edward Lionheart, get the whole story of his uh, near death and apparent like resurrection. Unfortunately for him, he is not going to be getting the cheerful reunion he's expecting. Lionheart reveals himself in full Troilus and Cressida costume, where he confronts this guy about his bad reviews and about the Critics Award that we don't have the all details on just yet, but we get them very soon, before those uh, random drunk people grab the guy, hold him back, so that Vincent Price can jam a spear through his chest. And uh, this is the first very graphic murder, like, up close. The effects are not great. Yeah, the yeah. blood that comes out when it goes through and some of that are not super realistic. 
They do a decent job with the camera angles, I think, to like hide as much of the non-gore or realism as possible. But you're right. The special effects at this time are are not up to snuff, right? Well, it's 1973, which is, again, like the effects would not have been good at that yeah. time, right? It's just not yet. It's just not, it's, it's one of those things where like we're going to talk about our ratings at the end, but it's not something that I would sort of speak against this movie for oh, because okay. of its time period, yeah, right? And I mean, sometimes we do that, sometimes we don't. And I guess like, you have to decide whether you thought it was good or bad for the time. Well, that's, uh, are you feeling all right? This is not the tag that you usually take. <laughs> well, this is uh, the exact opposite of what we get from you. Uh, uh, the next day at Maxwell's funeral, Devlin notices a familiar lady uh, carrying some flowers to into a like mausoleum. But what he does not notice is a shittily costumed Vincent Price watching them all and then pouring dirt on the coffin with a tiny shovel. Why was the shovel so small? You mentioned this while we were watching it. Yeah, he's using like an edging shovel, something you would do to like clean the edge of a garden instead of a digging shovel. They just, whoever was the prop person for this had no idea how to dig a grave or a garden. Yeah, it's a fucking Weebelow shovel. It's something you give to like the, the kids that are too young to be Boy Scouts. <laughs> dig a little fucking even, hole, yeah. Yeah, it, it was pretty hilarious. You see him pick up some dirt and toss it in using that shovel, but he had to reach real low. I'm sure he was not pleased as an actor that they gave him that shovel. Probably not. He does get to give a nice little monologue here. It's another one about a man being dragged by a horse just as we see that happen. It's the critic we just saw get murdered. His body's dragged up by a horse. Devlin identifies the corpse, then decides to go see about that woman, who, it turns out, is Edward Lionheart's daughter, Edwina. Weird fucking name. Yeah, I didn't even think about Clearly that. Clearly the guy is a fan of himself. Yeah, so he, yeah. It's Edward's yeah, it's Edward in female form. Oh my goodness. Yeah, she uh she basically accuses him of killing her father with his bad reviews. Well, the brilliant Peregrine Devlin, wielder of the brutal aphorism, master of the killing phrase, my father's murderer. That's a bit melodramatic, isn't it? Oh, forgive me. I forgot. It was your reverence and admiration that drove him to take his own life. And this is going to be our killer's motive, as we've already discussed. Yeah, the killer is out for vengeance for the death of... Well, his career. His career, yeah. yeah. He thought he was going to win that award. He gave everything, 30 years of full performances in Shakespeare. And in his mind, great performances. Yes. In his mind. I mean, he's all in. Just like Vincent Price in this movie, committing everything to those characters. Oh, 100%, yes. Now, after a quick dress rehearsal, including a giant wooden chest, we cut to the opulent bedroom of one of the other critics, and that giant chest is in there, having been delivered earlier that day. Now, this critic tries to open the chest, but can't, and they're like, oh, that's weird, and they decide to go to bed, which, I mean, I might be a little more alarmed in light of the two murders, but that's just me. A giant chest or gift that you're unaware of ends up in your bedroom, and you decide, that's fine, I'm going to go to sleep beside it. This is a recurring theme of this movie also, though. Is I don't, And we were talking about this, this movie uh, filmed in England, I believe. Many of the actors are British. And we were trying to figure out if, like, because a whole bunch of them just are not alarmed by any of this. Is this a whole stiff upper lip British thing? It's like, oh, that's odd, funny that. And just like, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's just a British sensibility thing. They're like, oh, that's just out of the normal, but keep going. Yeah, well, as you can imagine, this does not end well for him. In the night... Uh, under cover of darkness, a hand reaches out of the chest to unlock it, and out pops Edward Lionheart and his right-hand man, the guy with the mustache, yeah. and they also have like a toolbox full of medical supplies. There's no way all of them would have fit in this chest. It's a big chest, but it's not that fucking big. It's a very large chest. Like, Dude. I think they would have fit in it, no problem. 
the fact that they had like a whole set of medical tools and like operating procedure stuff in there was hilarious, but I don't know. At the very least, can we agree that it wouldn't have been comfortable? Oh, no. It wouldn't have been comfortable. Lionheart basically would have been inside that dude, which is uh, all the more, especially considering we find out later. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, they decide to perform amateur surgery on this critic after first drugging him and his wife. Which, like, my God, they take this giant fucking needle, <laughs> jam it right into this lady's ass, and she has this delayed reaction where she's like, ooh. <laughs> it's like so ridiculous. Well, and they thought it was so funny that they do it again later in the scene when well, she, she starts, starts to wake up. up. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. This whole scene is fucking hilarious. Like, they saw off the dude's head. There's blood spray everywhere. The, like, yeah, the woman's starting to wake up again, and they're drugging him, and, like, and then, and then in the morning... The maid comes in, sees this guy's dead body, screams, faints, falls on the ground. The head rolls off the bed and lands beside her. Then she like comes to after faint and looks over, sees the head, screams and faints again. This, it's fucking hilarious. This is a comedy scene. This scene was tremendous. Yeah. I, I laughed a lot. This was one of the better comedy scenes in the entire thing. Mm-hmm. There was some other comedy in it, not a ton, but this felt intentionally comedic and it, the timing worked out really well. Like, well, the stuff with the maid, my God. We immediately got confused, though, after this, because inexplicably, that same head, the dude's head, suddenly is just outside of Devlin's door, which how? Yeah, this was a continuity mistake. Gotta be, right? Right? Like, this is a mistake. They wanted to do one thing. That head scene was just so hilarious, they had to include it. But they also wanted to somehow transition to Devlin, who seems to be the sort of head critic, the one that they're all kind of pointing back to. We know yeah, that he's, he's in charge of the circle. Yeah, he's going to be the one that we come back to at the end of this thing, right? But it didn't make any sense. There was no explanation how the head got out of the bedroom with the maid and the wife because Price is gone. Like, oh, Lionheart yeah. and his assistant are I gone. Mean, the chest was still there in the room, so they wouldn't put themselves back. In they the chest. might have crawled back in the chest to watch the reveal. Just to make it harder for them to leave later? Come on. And then they could have popped out after the reveal, dumped the other two women in the chest, and then put the head there. I mean, it's possible. We're, But again, we're having to do a lot of legwork here to make this make sense. A lot. Yeah, yeah. I don't like it. Now, from there, we cut to our next victim. It, uh, it's the guy who loves p- and <laughs> Old perv, I wrote yeah, down. Yeah, old perv. And you know who is uh, right there to lure him into a trap? Edwina Lionheart wearing a blonde wig. You weren't sure it was her. It is 100% her. Yeah, I don't know why that costume in particular was giving me troubles, but it didn't look like the same person to me. I guess It's an I, excellent wig. Like There's yeah, no indication that it's not a yeah. real hair. But she uh, she sashays up in some uh, knee-high boots and a short skirt, tight shirt, blonde wig. Basically, she lures him away because uh, someone else was supposed to do something, play some role, and now she's asking him to do it. He falls for this immediately. He starts groping up her thigh a little bit, can't leave fast enough. And unfortunately for him, they leave this place he is right before a policeman shows up to take him into protective custody. So he's in the wind. Yeah, the British police had decided that after three separate murders, it was time to protect the other members of this uh, (laughs) critics' guild or this group of critics. So he heads off with her, and where does she take him? She takes him to that same old theater where they are going to be running through a scene from Merchant of Venice. How did you feel about Vincent Price's makeup for this scene, just out of curiosity? Uh, (laughs) The nose piece was slightly offensive. Well, I mean, he's playing the role of Shylock, the Jewish uh, character from the thing, and they give him a very stereotypical uh, Jewish nose. 
the racism aside, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is never really a good thing to say, but racism aside, the set that they create for this murder is very cool in terms of the height they put on. Like, they do a lot of work in this theater to set up some interesting murders here. For sure. And in this one, as you would expect if you know the play Merchant of Venice, Lionheart ends up taking a pound of flesh from the critic literally as he uh, once again confronts him about his bad reviews, then stabs him through the heart, which he then pulls out of the guy's body way too easily, by the way. He's got this little knife. He's kind of like nicking him and all of a sudden he rips the guy's heart out like no way. The knife wasn't little, but it would be hard to get through someone's chest to get to it, right? Like you're right. That was too convenient. What happens when it's coming out of the chest? Well, it's like there's like steam coming yeah. off it or like smoke, <laughs> and we couldn't figure out why it's like steaming. And I don't it know. It might be cold in that theater, but it can't be that fucking cold. Yeah, it was weird. I don't, I don't understand that, but it was kind of funny. I did like this part though, which is that he goes to weigh it, and it's a little bit over a pound, so he has to cut a little bit off because he wants it to be exactly a pound. That's oh, a, that's nice. Now we got sixteen ounces. We're okay. And again, we've just talked about this a little bit, but I'm like, why do the critics keep walking into these situations? At no point is this guy like, oh, this is very strange. I'm in this old decrepit theater with this guy who, uh, you know, sounds exactly like this actor I used to know who's allegedly dead and all these guys are dying. But, oh, cool. I'll, I'll play this out. Let's see yeah, how it goes. Yeah, it's, it's absurd that they keep getting into these situations. They don't run. When we talked about um, Boondock Saints, you said, why don't these people run away when they know they're the last one During there? the prayer, the ritual yeah, execution? yeah. And, yeah. These monologues that lead to the deaths are super long. I know that there's a crew of weird drunken thing people helping hold them back, but there should be some escaped attempts here that just don't happen. Yeah, no, definitely not. And uh, from there, we go to Devlin, who, to his credit, has cracked this thing wide open. He knows exactly what's going on here. He realized that all of these murders match up with a different Shakespeare play, uh, each of which was performed by Edward Lionheart. And how's this for motive? Lionheart was sure he was going to win that critic circle where we mentioned earlier. He'd even stood up to accept it, but they called out a different name. And we see via flashback that he crashed the after party and tried to steal the award before seemingly jumping off a balcony to his death. Uh, This death scene, fucking unbelievable. (laughs) (laughs) They are really laying it out for everyone here. Right? They're not leaving any doubts to why this is happening and what's going to come next. And I didn't know if that was because they thought people wouldn't pick up on it yet or they just really wanted you to have a sense of its motivation, like why he was performing these deaths. But they make you, again, feel for Vincent Price's character. He gives a great monologue. For 30 years, the public has acknowledged that I was the master. And that this year, my season of Shakespeare was the shining jewel in the crown of the immortal bard. But you, with your overweening malice, give the award to a twitching, mumbling boy who can barely grunt his way through an incomprehensible performance. No, no, it is mine. It's fucking incredible. Yeah, he comes in and has a wonderful monologue to these critics, and they laugh at and make fun of him. And they even laugh and kind of make fun of him as he's clearly like in trouble on the edge of a balcony on the edge of the building where they're having their party. I think the part you're talking about, his incredible death, is when he decides to jump off. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) somehow, despite the fact that there's a balcony... He just like basically tips forward in a perfectly straight position with his hands kind of at his sides. His daughter lets out a just massive scream. She's there too. 
And he executes like a pretty flawless dive right into what must be the Thames, I guess. Like the yeah, yeah. right into the river. It, it is hilarious. Both the fall over the balcony, the scream that's kind of mistimed, and then the fact that the body is perfectly still as it's falling. Like clearly, this is a dummy and not a real <laughs> yeah, person. It's like a cardboard right? cutout. It, yeah, or it doesn't move <laughs> at all. It, there's no movement. <laughs> Not even a little bit. I don't even know how that's possible, but it is perfectly still. And then you get that splash into the water, and then they all assume he's dead. They do, but he is clearly not, and Devlin's pieced this together. Back in the uh, present day, in a case of perfect timing, a package gets delivered to Devlin, and wouldn't you know it, it's the heart. So uh, surely now the British police will be on high alert, right? No, the next scene we see, one of those critics is going to a fucking wine tasting. Like, way to crank up the security, guys. I mean, there was a police officer waiting in the car when he went into his wine tasting, but you're right. Um, this guy's clearly got priorities. The rest of his, like, friend group is being murdered to death, and he decides it's time to go drink some wine. Well, this is the guy we saw in the early scene who had a thing for wine. I like what you mentioned with the police officer. That fucking police officer in the car, the guy walks into a room full of people, one of whom is Lionheart's fucking right-hand man, and the cop just, like, takes a look. He's like, all right, have fun. Yeah, terrible nothing. fucking job. Didn't even want to. Didn't even want to stand outside the bar to listen for any problems. Uh, the entire group of them disappear from that room very shortly, and the cop doesn't think anything of it. Nope, they disappear down into a creepy wine cellar where, of course, Vincent Price is waiting. They end up drowning this guy in a barrel of wine. Yeah, I think Price puts on a pretty good performance here too. He's clearly carrying all of this movie. Oh, oh my God, yes. For it, sure he is. It made me wonder whether they had written it specifically for him or it was one of those where like he had a, a help in making this idea or this plan, right? I don't know. It just felt like it was so much of a demonstration of his skills that it, it there wasn't a whole lot else to it. I think to your point, there's a very limited number of actors who were, would be willing to work in this low-budget horror genre that would also kind of have the chops to pull this off. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a hell of a performance for sure, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, later on as well. Now, the next day, Devlin decides to pay a visit to Edwina. She's uh, working on as like a makeup artist on a movie shoot, I guess, and he's hoping she has answers. She pretends like she doesn't, but the cops bring her in anyway. And I guess uh, they assume she's the killer because the next day Devlin's just out fucking walking around, going about his normal routine with no police escort. What the hell? <laughs> it's absurd. Um, the British cops are not portrayed in a very effective light here, that's for sure. Yeah, terrible job by them. Now, I guess part of his normal routine involves going to his favorite fencing club, and uh, you'll never guess who's there waiting for him. Lionheart! He <laughs> pretends at first to be some other person, like some foreign fencing enthusiast. He's got some weird, like, Swedish-French accent going yeah. here. But quickly reveals who he is by whipping off his fencing mask and saying, You see? Lanhart! <laughs> that was one of the better <laughs> lines. Good, yeah, for sure. For sure. It's a very funny moment. And this next sequence, which has to be coined the action sequence of the movie, is both amazing um, and ridiculous at the same time. Oh, absolutely. It's like a 70s action scene. It's fencing, so we've got, you know... They're, God, they're taking these big swipes, and they're not even close to each other, and the moves are so exaggerated. But then... They're doing it in a room full of gymnastics equipment, and there's just so many unnecessary flourishes. And it ends with the two of them bouncing back and forth on two trampolines, like fencing each other. 
It's yeah. fucking incredible. It becomes like a fight between two people with fencing swords in an American Ninja Warrior gym. Like, yeah. they are fighting on a beam, and then they're off small trampolines. Vincent Price swings on a rope and slashes <laughs> and trips down. down yeah. yeah, he Tarzans him. Um, they jump on the giant trampolines. It is like, you can't even describe it. It is very that, difficult yeah. to describe because it is so bafflingly hilarious. It's, I have, yeah, I have it literally written down here. I said, I cannot even describe how amazing this is. <laughs> yeah. It's got to be the funniest scene in the movie. For sure, for sure. Now, uh, Price does not kill him here. He tells him he's going to do that later, whenever he wants, maybe a week, maybe a month, maybe a year. But he does give an absolutely scalding hot speech about how critics are the scum of the earth. And again, like Vincent Price is having a lot of fun here. Oh God, yes. This is, it seems like a scene that was made to have fun and like sort of give it back to the critics just a little bit. 100%. And speaking of giving it back to the critics, he's got something special in mind for the next guy. He makes his way past the police guard by posing as a masseur. They do not check his credentials, though we find out later that apparently he's been coming there for weeks. He's playing the long game on this, I guess. And he massages this critic's wife in a way that sort of turns increasingly sexual or at least appears increasingly sexual. Nothing sexual is going on, but like it's a lot of like thrusting. He's kind of on top of her. It sounds very moan heavy too. So the critic who I think at this point has become suspicious of where his wife keeps going, when he gets upstairs and hears these moans and then hears some of the creaking of the bed, he thinks something else is going on. Oh, yeah. Apparently, he is insanely jealous. And the wife knows it, too, because as soon as she hears his voice, she's like, what's he going to think? And she panics. Dude busts in. He punches through a door. Yeah, he breaks up the Kool-Aid, man. Yeah. And he then puts he, his arm right through it, opens yep. the lock side of the door, and comes in. Now, he goes at Price, but Price puts him down with a karate chop to the head. <laughs> 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 karate. <laughs> but this guy, the guy recovers fast enough to, like, you know, He's on top, falls on top of his wife. He recovers fast enough to then like strangle her to death. So he's going to jail. But yeah, Price Price tells her that uh, she's been like taking it, and it was all her idea, basically. He tells and the guy, he tells the critic. Yeah. yeah, he tells the critic that, and the critic loses it and smothers her to death with a pillow. Yeah, and that's it. He's going to jail for a long time. Now Devlin correctly calls out the cops for not doing a very good job of protecting them. But I'm like, maybe stop going out in the world and doing shit. Like, all these critics are getting murdered because they're still going out and trying to do stuff, including Devlin. He was fucking fencing like a day ago. Yeah, get them back into some kind of hiding. No, they're not going to do it, though. Literally, the next scene we see is the female critic, the one female critic, Miss Moon, going to get a haircut. And this is where we meet Butch. (laughs) This is by far the best of Vincent Price's different personas in this movie. You think so? You didn't. You weren't a fan of Butch. Oh, Come on. It was funny. It, incredible. It was really funny. The, this is his interpretation of a male hairdresser bringing her the newest uh, hairstyle techniques from Gay Paris. Yeah, you mentioned Gay Paris. Yeah. yeah, he's putting on these kind of feminine airs, giant collared shirt, very unbuttoned. Definitely telling um, her how it is, like very straight up talk, not sugarcoating anything. No, nope. flirting with the police officer in order to keep the police officer away. You just sit there, baby, and relax. She won't be long. And the way he kills her, he hooks up like her curlers to some electrical current. The lady's acting here where she's getting electrocuted is hilarious. <laughs> the facial expressions, just oh, like. Oh, it's really bad. And then we get all of this like smoke coming out. And, and then, the cop does nothing. He the, the lights go on and off. There's this like weird buzzing sound. And the cop's just like reading newspaper. Doesn't fucking care. He was busy reading the like bathing suit and underwear section of like a. <laughs> <laughs> 
a mail-in ordering magazine. <laughs> it's the fucking Sears Roebuck. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, my God, man. So she's gone, and now there's only two critics left. The next day, Edwina summons Devlin to her movie set to tell him that her father is, in fact, alive. He contacted her last night, and that he wants her to meet him. And I'm not shitting you, Devlin offers to go with her. This is a questionable move, I feel. Like, what is this guy fucking doing? I mean... Devlin seems to be the one working with the police, though, so he says he's going to come alone and not worry about it, but I think he's smarter than that. Well, we do see they kind of set up a sting. Before we get to that, though, the other critic who's left besides Devlin, this guy is a very, uh, also kind of a flamboyant guy, dog enthusiast, loves his dogs. There's two poodles, I think, that yep. uh, he dotes over. They're kind of with him everywhere, and he calls them his children. Yeah, his babies. Uh, the cops have his place surrounded, but Lionheart has a plan. He uh, dresses up one of his uh, crazy goons in a Vincent Price Halloween mask and has him drive by to lure all the cars away. And I mean literally all the cars. They all leave. No one stays on scene. They all just chase after this van. After about seven minutes of Austin Power three-point turns. Oh, fuck yeah. All those cop cars can't get each other's way. They're like all honking. It's ridiculous. <laughs> So they, he effectively gets them out of there, and they all rush into the house. The critic isn't there, though. Um, what are they rushing into the house to do? They're going to stage a cooking show called This Is Your Dish, and they're also going to uh, murder his dogs and put them into some meat pies and then feed them to him. Which, I guess, is part of the plot of one of the Shakespeare plays that... Uh, Someone eats her children. Yeah. In a pie. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, pretty dark days. And these <laughs> these dogs yeah. are this critic's children. So, uh, the critic gets home. Surprised to find this is your dish in his kitchen. But he's excited. He is. And uh, he's very much enjoying the meal. Having the time of his life. Until Vincent Price pulls the lid off one of those big serving dishes to reveal... These severed heads of his two poodles sitting on top of the second pie. He tells him he's meeting his fucking dogs. It is dark. I agree. <laughs> and then, not only does he find out he's been eating it, he then gets laid up on the table where they get a very large metal funnel and yeah. start jamming more of the pie into his throat. It looks like one of those old-timey, like, you know those big megaphones they would use on, like, film sets in, like, yes. the 1940s? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah good comparison. And they just, just shovel the food in there. He's just constant, like, the dog, which, the, the you know, there's two pies. It didn't seem like there was that much food, but I guess maybe they had more food they were pumping into him. They were big pies. They, they yes. had very deep dishes. I don't know. It was enough. There was enough material there to choke for sure. Yeah. Or his stomach explodes. Or I don't fucking know. Either way, he's dead. So one to go. It's Devlin. He goes with Edwina to meet her dad, just like he said he would. And there's cops all around. Like we say, he's kind of set up a sting. And they're waiting to pounce. But unfortunately, so is Lionheart as he has one of his goons knock out Devlin and put him in a different vehicle while Edwina drives Devlin's car and the police officer hidden in the trunk onto some train tracks. This part, <laughs> it sounds horrible to, uh, oh. to have a man get killed by a train smashing into his car, but you and I were laughing the whole fucking time. Um, so the reason why we're laughing is because they don't show this. We have over the radio, the police radio, which somehow this policeman is brought with him in the trunk of the car. Yep. We have him describing the scene to us as he's about to get smashed. And this police officer is not particularly bright. No, he just thinks they're near a train track. He's like, <laughs> I hear a train whistle. 
And then all of a sudden you hear the crash and that's the end of it. And, and the like, look on the look on the intercom's uh, face is receiving this message is just like, oh you fucking moron. Oh yeah, man. Yeah. So uh that's that. When Devlin wakes up, he sees that Lionheart has recreated the set of the Circle Critics Awards from the year he didn't win, complete with members of his entourage there wearing giant paper mache masks of the dead critics. This reminded me of Oh my goodness, I don't even know if you're going to know this reference, but there is a Shia LaBeouf video where these people like put on these big paper mache Shia LaBeouf heads, and it's all about Shia LaBeouf like hunting down and murdering someone. Okay. It almost made me think that the Shia LaBeouf thing was a reference to this film. I mean, nothing's impossible. I kind of thought the fencing scene in Die Another Day might have been a reference to the fencing scene here in the fucking club with, uh, you know. Yeah, it's very possible for sure. Oh, I don't know if it's very possible. <laughs> I mean, it's, maybe it's potentially possible. Um, so they're re- gonna, oh, yeah, yeah. they're going to relive that night again. He's going to give one more chance for Devlin to write where he was wrong. Yeah, he threatens him with a good old fashioned blinding if Devlin won't give him the award. But Devlin refuses to change his original ruling and begs Lionheart to think of what he's doing to his daughter. And this is where we get the big reveal. The uh, weird hippie fro mustache person was his daughter all along. Yeah, it explains the weird, like, high-pitched voice the guy was speaking in. And, yeah. yeah. I mean, it you, took You called me, it earlier. You I called it, it earlier, yeah. but it took me longer than it should have. I recognized the voice first as a problem, and then over time I was like, wait a minute. But... Yeah, by this time, I'm sure everyone who watched the film has figured it out. Yeah, no, I don't think we mentioned at any point, but his daughter is played by Diana Rigg, star of the original Avengers show, and uh, the Bond girl from uh, Honor, Majesty, Your Service, the one that he marries, and from Game of Thrones, the uh, the old lady from the, uh, fuck, what family was it? Ah, the Tyrell, uh, the Marjorie, not Marjorie Tyrell, the, the, uh, the Tyrell uh, really? patriarch. Yeah. The, like, grandmother queen Legendary woman. British actress, Diana Rigg. Bit of a low point for her career-wise, perhaps, but yeah. Oh, I did not know that. She does a good job in this. She does a very good job, yeah. Yeah. So, before Vincent... Oh, by the way, we have to talk about the machine he rigs up to blind Devlin. (laughs) You mean the belts with the thing that rolls down because a rope is letting out sand and raising? Yeah, sandbag as it loses sand, raises up, and the two knives that are far, far wider than the uh, width of Devlin. Yeah, yeah, they're not going to, probably for the safety of the real actor, I'm guessing. But like, it slowly slides down towards him. Before this can happen, though, we hear sirens in the distance. The cops have found out where Lionheart is. So he fires off a quick toast to the end of a great season and starts setting the building on fire. We're getting close to our final bow here. Um, This is it. He's about to take it. Now, his entourage refuses to help, though, uh, despite the impassioned pleas of his daughter, Edwina, telling them to help their master, help their master. But this all culminates with one of them braining her with the Critics Award, which ends up killing her. (laughs) This is weird. Uh, I mean, I know they have to wrap things up, but it's... it was funny that getting hit in the back of the head with that took her out. I mean, it's possible it could. She Heavy goes, award, it looks like. Yeah, she goes down, uh, and Edward Lionheart comes over to sort of pick her up and have some last words with her. Yeah, she does come to for a little bit, just long enough for her to basically say goodbye to her father. And from there, he kind of launches into this one final monologue. This is all falling apart now. Cops are there. Uh, Devlin's been freed. The building's on fire. 
Vincent Price picks her up and ends up carrying his daughter up onto the roof, King Kong style. He's on the outside of the building, scaling yeah, his daughter. This man is so strong. He picks her up. She's clearly dead weight and climbs all the way on the building with like one arm to the roof. And uh, how does he go out? Well, while reciting Shakespeare, he's doing yes, all this. Of course, that's true. But the fire is out of control, and a sudden updraft causes him to fall back into the theater to his death. And the last word here goes to Devlin. Yes, it was a fascinating performance. But of course, he was madly overacting as usual. But you must admit, he did know how to make an exit. What a dick. <laughs> uh, that's a pretty good end line. Yeah, it was a nice way to, to end that off. In the end, he doesn't quite get all the critics, and he doesn't get that award that he felt like he so deserved. It's true, uh, and that's it, man. We're out. The end credits last like 30 seconds because we got all that out of the way with the beginning. It's true. That went by really fast. What did you think, man? This is your first Vincent Price movie. Like, where did you, where'd you land here on this? Clearly a very strong actor. Enjoyed his performances. I like the idea. Like, I thought it was kind of a fun concept to have a scorn actor go and try to take revenge. It made me, in some ways, question some of the things we might say on here. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I say, are we... Uh, are, the guy who wrote FDR American Badass yeah. is going to hunt us down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, one, no one who has created any content that we've talked about has ever listened to this podcast. That's true. So so I don't think we have to be worried. But fuck you, Ross Patterson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're a gem, Ross. You're a gem. Um but I, it, it is funny, right, to think about the power that someone has who has a large voice to talk about and criticize, um, especially people who are pouring their hearts and souls into creating something. Um, so I, I thought that was an interesting idea. I, I loved that each death was connected to something that happened into one of the performances he had done in the year that he thought he deserved to win. Yep. I would like to see more Vincent Price performances. I, you were telling me this is one of his later performances. He's got it is. Some, it's kind of late game for him. Yeah. He's got some more well-known earlier stuff that wouldn't fit on our podcast probably. Uh, or, or is it like is it because is, of sort of like the low budget or so a the, lot of, yeah a lot of his starring roles were for American International Roger Corman movies legendary low budget filmmaker Roger Corman it's a lot of like sparse sets and kind of you know limited special effects and stuff because it was a budget thing and like no 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 shame on price Vincent Price is fucking great yeah but just the 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 low budget nature of some of the movies I think would make a few of them eligible for sure it's not his performance or abilities that make these bad movies it is just the production value and the story and the writing and everything that goes around yeah they're cheesy low budget movies now he yeah. is reveling in his performances in yeah them, that's which true. is really cool but he yeah. leans super hard into it regardless of what the sort of cost behind him is on these movies he's a pro did you have any feelings about this or you just want to get into the rating and you'll talk uh, about it? I'll probably talk about it in there. So let's get to it. Uh, the way we do it, we're on a scale of one to 10, two times one to 10 for how bad it is, one to 10 for how enjoyable. And I say this every single week. The goal is to find movies that are 10 out of 10 on both scales, or as we call it, the Crit, Crit 20. 20. 20. 20. And for me, uh, I am a Vincent Price fan. I am a low budget horror fan. I, this movie's not even going to be close for me. I have this as a six bad. I think like it is, again, clearly low budget. I do think the fact that so many of the actors are British does in some way limit some of the performances. I don't know if that was a directorial choice or if that's the actors, just, you know, their choice. But like a lot of the kind of subdued reactions kind of took out some of the terror, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. There wasn't that kind of frantic urgency. 
it's it's not a scary movie in the traditional sense. It's a horror movie because this guy's a maniac and he's killing people, but there aren't really those moments of tension or fear. However, as you mentioned, the connection of his backstory, the theatrical plays to the deaths, to the murders, to the performances, getting to see all those different Vincent Price performances. And fuck, man, like again, the dude is just, he is all in on this. He is going hard. It's a great performance by him. Diana Rigg is very good. The only thing I can hold against it is the low-budget nature and some of the performances of the British actors. Overall, I think it is a pretty coherent story that is executed well, and the lead performance is great. So I've got it as a six. What do you think? Yeah. So in terms of a bad rating, the acting, because most of it was price and then some rigs, wasn't horrible. However, the acting of all of the extras and or the like police officer and many of the critics was quite poor. The effects were okay, but not good. The melting. But you said they weren't bad for the era. Yeah, Those no, 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 no. Words. I know. I agree. I don't think they were awful. Um, I thought the sound was a struggle for me. That's true. Yeah. I had a lot of trouble hearing some of the acting, and some of that was probably accent. But I thought more of it was sound capturing. But really, in terms of a concept, uh, in terms of a plot and an idea, and in terms of its execution, I th- I thought it was pretty well done. Um, I, I had this as a seven bad, so okay. like not, not crazy bad, right? Yeah, we're pretty close. Yeah. What about enjoyable for you? It was slow to start for me. I mean, the first killing was kind of neat because it felt kind of like that zombie movie feeling and it was interesting and it was kind of frenetic and fast. Um, but be- until I got to the point of understanding that this was a scorn actor recreating a Shakespearean creation of each one, it was a bit of a struggle for me. But once it started rolling, I wanted to know what was going to happen, how it was going to happen. They did a good job of making me want to see him succeed. Yeah. Right? Like, Vincent Price, to me, was the hero of this movie in many ways, even though he was taking down all those critics, which is such a strange thing to say, right? Yeah. It wasn't scary in any way, not thrilling no, in any like way. Like I said, but it's not yet. Yeah, it's not. And I don't think that's the intention. No. Right? I don't think at the time that that was what it was intended. So... I did enjoy watching it, and it would make me want to watch other Vincent Price films. I gave it an eight enjoyability for me because it was yeah. such a like it was such a learning experience for me too about what that was. Well, we're gonna be close in this one too. I have it as a nine. Now, I I am a huge Vincent Price fan. Like I prefaced uh, before we even did this episode, that's the case. And uh, I think you touched on something important, which is it does start out a little bit slow for sure. For me, it starts picking up once we get to the murder of the dude who's all about the ladies. Mm-hmm. That one there where like he's in the theater, they take the pound of flesh, and from there we start gaining steam. We get that, we get the fencing, we get the fucking, the scene with uh, with Butch, we get the scene with yes, the dogs. You're right. I don't have it as a 10 kind of because of the slow start and because of some of the other actors, their performance that I already mentioned, but Vincent Price is just, he's just putting on just the masterclass here, right? Like he is just, chewing up the scenery in a way that fits who his character should be. He's supposed to be this megalomaniacal. They refer to him always as overacting. And so it is, he's dialed up to 11, but that fits the character and he does it in an interesting way. He's a really interesting performer and there's no one else like him. And this just shows so much of his range and his ability. And for me, it's it's very enjoyable. I can't go full 10, but I've got it as a nine. Love the movie. And uh, I also love this beer. Final bow. It's very tasty. What a great porter. 
Easy to drink. We've had two weeks in a row of dark beers that were absolutely on point. Yeah, stout last week and the porter this week. And this one, you know, you always talk about like the notes. Oh, the chocolate. I got I got some notes out of this. And I got the chocolate. I got the kind of coffee taste. Yeah. There you go. This is this is awesome. I mean, are, are we going with a theme here in the second half? We're uh, we're gonna be kicking it dark beer style. I mean, it is kind of a winter beer theme, but we'll have some other stuff. But I think it's the coincidence we have these two back to back. Yeah. Um. But no, really smooth, like you said, and flavorful, and uh, yeah, it does kind of warms the stomach a little bit. You know, I'm looking forward to having some more beers uh, from uh, Overflow Brewery. You're a big IPA guy, and a lot of their like best selling beers are IPAs. So, and they're pretty good. Like even as someone who's not, like does not like IPAs. I enjoy something. We better wrap this up. I agree. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> shit face. Oh, man. Woo! I turn my washroom into a theater of bar flavor. <laughs> uh, get excited for next week, though, because it's finally happening. What? After many delays and stalls and technical difficulties, next week we are finally talking about Showgirls. <laughs> oh, Jesse Spano nude. So we tried, this was on our poll before our second season started for our season premiere. It lost to the Back to the Future Part 2, so we didn't talk about it then. We were supposed to have it as our first episode back when we came back from our mid-season break, but some stuff got fucked up with the audio and we had to pause that one and push it back so we could cut it and fix whatever. So it's been like we're we're basically, God, almost like six months overdue here in my opinion because I cannot believe Back to the Future <laughs> beat it in that poll. Yeah, it seems for some reason the universe didn't want this episode to happen, but it's happening anyway. Yeah, fuck you, universe. We're doing it next week. <laughs> so that'll be next week. Um, if you haven't already, please follow us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, at the BMB podcast. If you want to send us any suggestions for movies, feel free to send them to the DMs of our social media or send us an email at thebmbpodcast at gmail.com. Absolutely. We love to hear from you, and we hope that you'll hear us talk about Showgirls next week. Until then, I'm Cooper. And I'm Nolan. And we'll see you next time on Bad Movies and Beer. Keep it bloody. Okay. It's curtains for his critics. 